Father, we thank You again that we can come to Your Word. Thy Word is truth. And that in an age of chaos and confusion, that we have a compass, we have a standard. And we thank You that You give us this standard and that You illuminate our hearts to it. We ask that You would incline our hearts to submit and apply these truths in our lives. In Christ's name, Amen. Um, to begin tonight, I'd like to kind of go through again just a little bit of review. can't really review enough, and repetition always helps. So, since we're on the Sinai event, and we're looking at law, um, Tommy, could you turn this first bank of lights off. Appreciate it. I think will make the screen just a little bit clearer. We all have to guess. There it is. Good. Thank you, Tony. Um, let's, let's think of biblical law again because that's our topic and it's a topic that we need to understand because tonight we're going to move from the event of Mount Sinai to, to crucial doctrines of the Christian faith which concern the integrity of the Bible. So we want to just back up and review a point that we made before about biblical law. What we're talking about is an absolute reference point for right and wrong. An absolute reference point for knowledge. And Apart from the scriptures, there is no such thing. We can't emphasize that enough. We don't have to be ashamed of our faith. We're not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the only place where there are certain treasures and riches that show the presence of our Lord. And he demonstrates his footprint, so to speak, because when he leaves them, they point to an absolute reference point. And the law in the scripture is different than the law outside of the scripture because of this diagram that we went over a thousand times last year. If law is the product of man, if law originates from men's ideas and only men's ideas, that there's nothing beyond that. It's just social consensus, Gallup poll prejudices, Um, lawyers, contemplations. If that's the source of law, and only the source of law, then we're back to the problem that we go over this again and again, that man is trapped, because of his knowledge, he's trapped in the box. And man's experience in time, man's experience in space, is limited. There it is. That's a diagram of the finitude of man's knowledge. Man is trapped inside this box. And because he's trapped inside the box, he can't produce any kind of an absolute that goes outside of the box. But a, just, but a judgment that's right or wrong is saying that it's right or wrong by a standard that transcends society and individuals. So, just as this was a problem back in the days when we were talking about Genesis and creation and trying to 
get knowledge of past, the past that was out beyond man's power to directly observe, now we run into the same problem when we decide we're going to make law. Same exact problem. Man is limited. And so because of man's limited point, we come to the those statement that couldn't have been put better than Justice Jackson put it in Nuremberg, 1945, when he used the terms the transient and the provincial. And what he meant was that the if man makes the law, it's provincial. That is, it's limited in space. It's limited to a society. Uh, the English would differ from the French, who would differ from the Germans, who would differ from the Americans. So you have that limitation. And it's transient because even if you are in America, the laws made in 1997 are going to differ from the laws in 1776. So it's provincial and transient. Those two adjectives describe all man's laws. And when it came to Nuremberg and it came to the settlement of atrocities of a peculiar nature, Nuremberg is a, is a study in and of itself because the crimes committed were not crimes internal to the society. It wasn't somebody stealing. It wasn't somebody murdering because those would have been um, those would have been recognized by other people in the society's wrong. The, the dilemma that Nuremberg produced was when the whole society agrees that right is wrong and wrong is right, now what do you do? See, that's the dilemma. And that's always going to be a dilemma. It's a frightful thing. Uh, but just as societies agree that way, as we move into the internet era and so forth, I mean, it's very obvious that the technological tools now exist to create a one-world opinion, to share a perversion that is truly global. And one doesn't have to exercise too much imagination to see the stage being slowly set up for a genius who can manipulate that to, a, to be in a finesse. I mean, Hitler and Goebbels did a fantastic job, if you think about it, with the primitive, relatively primitive, backward communication as we look at it in, 19, in the 1940s. They did an amazing thing. I mean, they kept most Germans from realizing what was going on. I went to school with a boy whose dad fled Germany in late 30s. And this boy was a Christian. His dad was, a, I think he was a Plymouth Brethren minister or something. Brethren, by the way, were the one evangelical group in Germany that saw what was going on quick, and the reason they did was because they had a premillennial eschatology. But his dad had to go to the bathroom one night about 2 o'clock in the morning, and he got out of bed and he was in the, in the bathroom, and he, the bathroom window was right on the street, and he saw a bus go by. And he just peered out just for a second, and he noticed on that bus were some of the retarded children in his village. And they were being hauled off. And the next day, he happened to see that oh, they were going to reform school or something, special education. Yes, yeah, special education, all right. Uh, they were being eliminated because they represented an impediment to the great German-Aryan uh, society. And he, he got onto that because 
he, he just happened to be there at the right time. Otherwise, he wouldn't have. And, of course, in our own congregation, uh, if you want to get insights as to what it must have been like, is Helly Brown, who's been with us for many years. And Helly will tell you, as a, as a young girl growing up in Austria, how she heard on the radio this and that, never got a clue about what was going on because of the tremendous deluge of propaganda. But today we have far, far more effective means of propaganda than they had in the 40s. You can imagine uh, a person of evil intent, what he can do today. So the compass that is absolutely necessary for us to remember is that we have to have this, have a standard that is not transient, that is not provincial. That is, it's eternal, it's timeless. Truth is timeless. It isn't going to change. And the provincial is is going to be replaced by that which is uh, every ubiquitous, that which will work in any other place. Summary. What is the difference between biblical law and man's law? If we did summarize it in a very simple way, how do we read and understand law codes today? You go down the library, pull out the books, go into your lawyer's office, pull off the bookshelf, that kind of thing. How do we distinguish that law from the law that you read in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. What is the key different characteristic? Anybody got some ideas that we can toss into the hopper here? What, what would you summarize? We're just looking for a very simplistic uh, contrast between law that we read in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy and the law that we would be exposed to in law school or just in the courtroom, or on the books. How would we distinguish? There are some comparisons. There are similarities. I mean, obviously, murder is legislated against, theft is legislated against, and so forth and so on. So there, there are a lot of similarities. But what are the differences? Yes, Laura. What? Not based on precedent. Okay, very good point. A lot of law is based on precedent. It's interesting that the law even in the if-then sections of the Mosaic Law Code, were given at time t equals zero, before there were precedents. Okay, it, was, it wasn't based on precedent because it didn't fall out of men's judgments. It came out of God's words. So that's, that's a basic thing. Now, we observe something else, that the Mosaic Law Code is a... How is it formatted a little differently than a regular law code that makes it more than a law code, makes it very parallel to another kind of document other than a law type of document? What, what does the law say when you read Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers? It's a, it's a conversation with whom? Okay, law, uh, Bill points out that law has divine, it's given by a divine person and has divine implications. And the key here is that the law in Scripture comes from the personal God. Men's law comes from finite people. God's law comes from an infinite person. In both cases, they're products of persons. Products of people with knowledge. The difference is that in the Bible, God does the speaking. And because God speaks, 
God has a different characteristic than man. Remember we went back and we drew this contrast? Is that here God has the characteristic that He's omniscient. Man has a characteristic that he knows knowledge, but this knowledge is severely limited. This knowledge is unlimited. So since God speaks out of omniscience, God looks on the heart, not just the outward appearance. So we can make, as a result of this divine thing that Bill was talking about, we can basically say that the difference, if we were to summarize it very simply, is that biblical law is private and public, whereas normal human legislation is always public. Nothing in the law code says how I have to think. In the Bible it is. Thou shalt love the Lord, what? With all your heart, with all your soul. So the Bible addresses the heart as well as the outer behavior. And it can because the legislator, in this case, is omniscient and can penetrate to the heart. But no set of judges, no set of lawyers, no set of government people can penetrate to the heart because all they can see is the outward appearance. And that's all that the jurisdiction of the court has is the overt outward behavior. can't talk about the heart. Let's look at this principle in Romans chapter 2 for a minute because there Paul... Uh, addresses this issue. And we want to because there's tendencies to get kind of screwed up over these questions of the law in the Bible. Paul in Romans 2, remember we spent an awful lot of time last year with Romans 1, because in Romans 1 he addresses the pagan mind in its basic rawness. And we said last, a couple of evenings back, in verse 32 of Romans chapter 1, he concluded that section by saying the class of people, the actual pagan mind left to itself, they know the ordinance of God. They not only violate it, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. So you have a redefinition of deviancy. Okay? Now that represents, in verse 32, that represents perversion. If it were encoded into law, that would be perverted law. Because it gives approval to evil. It calls good evil and evil good. Now, in Romans 2, he moves over to the Jewish mentality of judging. And he says in verse 1, Therefore you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment, for in you you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, you do the same things. The only difference between verse 32 and, and the verse 1 is that both are sinners. In verse 32, the sinner is the licentious one. Remember we said there are two tendencies. And one is to relieve the pressure of the conscience, you can play one game. One game is to redefine deviancy. So you, this is the licentious person. And licentiousness is usually tied to anger and depression. At just the personality polls. And then you have the legalist. And the legalist has these tight standards and very optimistic that it's going to work, everything's, you know, going. But these poles always show up. They show up in all of us. We all have tendencies in one direction or the other, rocking back and forth. Well, in verse 1 of Romans chapter 2, he's arguing that before God doesn't make any difference whether you're a licentious type person or a legalist type person, because in the heart of the matter, in the heart, there's disobedience. So both of these 
Both of these positions are wrong scripturally because both of them rely upon law from a man's perspective. You see, in verse 1 of Romans 2, look, think what's happening. The person is judging who? The person who is the legalist is out here, has the standard, but what Paul says is he's doing is he's applying it over here to all these people. He's applying it to the crowd. What's missing of the fact is he's not applying it to himself. And so he says, for example, over in... Um, makes it very clear in verse two, uh, 20, goes down, uh, 19 and 20. You're confident, you're your guide to the blind, those who light to darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature. Now in verse 21, you therefore who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you should not steal. Do you steal? You who say you should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? So, what he's pointing out is that when he gets down to the bottom the legalist is interested in posing law to save himself from social chaos. That's the motive. Not, I want to submit to the Lord. Rather, I want to contain evil to have some sort of order left in my environment because I'm scared if we go the licentious route, well, we're just going to have total chaos, social breakdown. But from God's perspective, it's still just observing public behavior. It's not private matters of the heart. And what he says is there has to be. Because you notice in the two times in chapter 2 of Romans when he talks about judging, you notice how he uses it in verse 16? On the day when according to my gospel God will judge what? The secrets of men. The emphasis isn't on the external behavior. It's on the secret things of men. Notice in, in verse 28 and 29, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcised which is outward in the flesh, but he's a Jew which is one inwardly, circumcision which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. So that's the difference. There you have the Pauline answer to the law, the lawful use of the law. The law's object was to address the heart, and secondarily, social behavior. Social behavior is important, but it has to flow out of the heart. Heart first, then private first, then public. It's got to be in that order. It doesn't work the other way. Okay, now, we want to notice something else while we're here. Um, there's a quote that I leave in the notes on page 67, and it's so good. Uh, Martin Luther made this quote, and I think it sums up what I'm trying to get at here. Luther, in his commentary on Romans, this very passage that we're in, Romans chapter 2, uh, he made some astute comments. I urge you, if you don't already, in your Christian library at home, or if you, whatever few books you might have in your library, um, you ought to try, even if you have to go to the public library and borrow it, you ought to try once in a while, just a little bit, once in a while, Take John Calvin and Martin Luther, Augustine, or one of the big heavies, the big boys, and read them. It'll do several things for you. Number one, it shows you how trivial most of our literature is. When you think that John Calvin wrote his Institutes of the Christian Religion that set up the Protestant Revolution in all of Europe, and you know how old he was? Twenty-one. And he took on the Pope and every one of the professors inside Rome. 
what did these guys do? Well, I'll tell you one thing. They didn't worry about social adjustment courses in school. They learned very basic stuff. These guys were great, great men. And Luther, of course, was a wonderful fellow. And he has this quote, While the righteous make it a point to accuse themselves in thought, word, and deed, the unrighteous make it a point always to accuse and judge others. And I think that's a neat observation. The truth starts in our own personal hearts. That's why in Romans 2, when Paul speaks of Gentiles in verse 14 and 15, particularly in verse 15 of Romans chapter 2, you notice how he thinks of the law in the heart? Very, very revealing verse here. They show the work of the Lord written in their hearts. Now, how do they show the... Um, work of the law written in their hearts. Apparently these are saved Gentiles that he's talking about. The work of the law written in their hearts is the language of Jeremiah, so it's New Covenant. They show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience. Now here's a description of what it looks like for law to be working in the heart. Here's what it does. The conscience bears witness and their thoughts alternately accuse or excuse. The idea that there's a conflict going on in the heart. It's not an evil conflict. It's just a conflict of self-judgment before God. Should I do this? Should I do this? Is this pleasing to God? Is this not pleasing to God? You notice that the mark here of the law written in the heart is not perfection, because we're all sinners. The mark of the law in the heart is it's provoking reflection, self-reflection of what we're all about. That's the work of the law in the heart. So, so far this, t- this tonight, what I'm trying to do is outline what biblical law looks like, in, in essence. Now what we want to do is we want to review one other topic we broached last time, and that is a controversy that's erupted uh, in evangelical circles over lordship. So, lordship, salvation versus free grace. And on page 68, I tried to resolve some of that uh, I'm not going to obviously perfectly deal with the problem, but what I want to show you is you can take what we're learning here in this framework framework, and start applying it to these questions. Now, what we, what we have, the two schools of thought usually are called free grace and lordship salvation. They go by other names. Not important, the name. The free grace people, as so often happens in a lot of these controversies, if you think about them long enough and pray about them long enough, you really realize that, wait a minute, what the, there's an element of truth over here and there's an element of truth over here and it looks like what we're doing is doing this number. And this happens. I mean, it happens all the time. It happens in scholarly journals where literally these guys with doctorates can't understand what the other guy's written and said. And it's just miscommunication that goes on. But the free grace people, what they want to point out is that salvation, at the point that I am saved, I have to come to the Lord empty-handed. I can't come to the Lord with a set of vows that if He saves me, I'm going to be a good boy and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and all the other uh, baloney. The Bible says, partake of the water of life freely. 
It's a gift. It is something that's given to me because I can't get it any other way. I need a gift. I don't have any merit to bring to the cross. If I had merit, I wouldn't need the cross. That's the whole point. I am meritless. Remember we went through the minus number. You've got to get past zero to positive. I don't have anything. All I have is debt, 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 debt. So I can't come bearing any merit. So the emphasis over here is I come free grace because I have minus merit. I can't get there with anything I have, including vows about what I'm going to do and not going to do after I become a Christian. On the other hand, the Lordship people insist that you can't have a gospel where the person is sort of an independent thing to which they add the Lord Jesus Christ and then go on uh, their own way with Him as sort of an addition. That's not salvation either. Because when I trust the Lord for my salvation, it's my salvation. It's not, I'm trusting the Lord because He gives me psychological peace. Now, He does. But that's not the primary function of the Gospel. And we've had 50 years of of, a psychologized gospel that accept Jesus and your life will be straightened out. Accept Jesus and you'll have peace. Accept Jesus. Yes, this is all fruit. But the problem with that kind of a gospel is that it never reveals to the heart what salvation is all about. If you just heard, accept Jesus and your life will straighten out, accept Jesus and you'll feel better, What real difference is that if I came along tomorrow and said to you, except Vishnu, because it makes you feel better. Or do this and you'll feel better. You see what happens? What we've done is we've emasculated the gospel by turning it into an aspirin. And so the gospel is not an aspirin. The gospel is something where I have to realize In order to appreciate the work of Christ, I have to realize that I have offended my Creator. And the person I've offended isn't just my wife, my husband, uh, my teacher, my society, Dan Rather, or any other of the media. But what I've done is I have offended the Creator of the universe. So I've got a deep problem here. I just haven't irritated Joe. I've irritated the person who created the universe. That's who I'm irritated. So now, how do I deal with that one? So that issue has to come up, and if it doesn't come up properly, what you get is sort of these questionable conversions that go on. And you wonder, gee, what's going on there? So, so most of these people have a point, and I think we can put it in perspective if we realize that Exodus and Mount Sinai are two independent events. At Mount Sinai, God lays down the law, literally. And He tells you, I want you to do this, I want you to do that, I want you to do this, but if you'll turn to Exodus 20, look at how the conversation begins. And this is a, this is the key to the, getting these two balanced. In Exodus 20, verse 2, 
God lays down the law and He says several things. Obviously, He's saying that I want you to do this, I don't want you to do that, this pleases me, this displeases me. And then He adds, as we saw in the blessings and the cursings, and if you continue to do this, you'll have a problem. Because I'll make sure you have a problem. So, it's the Lordship is very in evidence here. But notice in verse 2, the motive of obeying the law is gratitude for salvation. See how he starts the conversation? I am the Lord your God, and I did something for you. See? That occurs before any of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God, and I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now it starts. You see? So, you can't have submission to lordship unless you have gratitude for what he has first done in saving you. So Mount Sinai has to follow the Exodus. You can't reverse the order of these two events. First salvation, then an appreciation for lordship. It's true when we're born again and we're new Christians. We haven't got you know, a minutiae idea of what the lordship is all about. We all know that. Come on. It's taken us, most of us, years to do that. We're still learning that. So why do we lay this on some new Christian? The idea here in the Exodus is that he tells his people, I have heard your prayers for deliverance and I will step in and I will save you. You trust me. And that's all you have to do. I don't want you fighting the Egyptians. I don't want you building an army for them. I don't want you going through some hocus-pocus stuff with them. I'll take care of all that. There's only one thing I want you to do, and that is I want you to put blood on the door. And you're going to have to trust me when the execution angel comes through this village, your town, your city, that your baby is going to be safe because you put blood on the door. And it's up to you. You choose not to, you choose to. But I'll tell you what's going to happen if you don't, and I'll tell you what's going to happen if you do. So, believe me, it's a trust. Now, there's no Ten Commandments being given there. He doesn't tell them ten different things to do. He tells them one thing to do. Trust me. That's the issue here at salvation. After that, we talk about what, he, what pleases him and what displeases him. Because we're not in a relationship with him. Mount Sinai defines a relationship that follows salvation. Okay. Now, out of all this, we want to move now to the doctrines that we... There's three doctrines that follow that we can associate with these events. And so what our procedure has been in this series is every time we learn an event, we learn the section of Scripture where the event happens. Then we talk a little bit about the historicity of that event, what's really a true event, really happened, over against what we learn in school. That, well, we can't be sure of this, we can't be sure of that, and history was this way, but the Bible is this way. What we want to do is clear up those questions by showing you, yes, there is a conflict between the biblical view of history and every area of human thought. Not just biology, but every area of human thought. Because the world is in the darkness. Now, when we get to Mount Sinai, remember we said the call of Abraham, we dealt with election, we dealt with justification, we dealt by faith, we talked with the Exodus, we talked about salvation and the, the blood atonement, we dealt with redemption, propitiation, reconciliation. Well, now, when we come to Mount Sinai, what are we going to talk about? What area of our classic Christian historic faith 
is pictured most easily by picturing that picture on Mount Sinai with God speaking on the top, with Him cutting those commandments in stone, giving them to Moses. What doctrine, what truths does that show our imagination? So here are the three doctrines that we're going to be looking at tonight, not next week, but the week after next week. Revelation, inspiration, canonicity. So we want to look at each of these three because these stand at the foundation of our faith. It's these three doctrines that separate fundamentalism from liberalism. It is these three doctrines that separate Protestantism from Catholicism. It is these three doctrines that separate historic Christianity from Mormonism. In every case that I just mentioned, modern liberalism, Romanism, and Mormonism, there's a conflict over those three. Both sides have a different view of those three areas of truth. Some more seriously than others. Obviously, Rome is a lot closer to us than, than Mormons. Rome is closer to us than the liberal theologian. So there are degrees of difference here. Okay, the first doctrine we want to talk about is the doctrine of revelation. And in your notes on page 69, there's that little diagram that's incomplete, and I forgot when I um, gave it to my wife to go to the copy store, I forgot to draw on it. So, here's the, here's the picture. God, man. And the idea of the of the of liberal today is that when it comes to thinking or conversation, whenever God has a thought in his mind, it stays over here. And if these are the thoughts of man, it stay over here. And there's a barrier between them because God can't speak to man. Man can only feel God's presence. Man can only think about God. But he can't literally hear God speaking. This is, I can't emphasize enough, this is a cutting edge that separates fundamental Bible-believing faith from going down to the first liberal church and hearing somebody preach at Easter. This is a great one. I always like to listen to Easter sermons by liberals because it's such an embarrassment to their whole philosophy to have somebody rising from the dead because it's so clearly supernatural. So I always love to watch what they do. And, of course, they have to do something on Easter. I mean, they're getting salaried. So they've got to keep their job. And so how do you keep your job, deny the faith, and fool everybody to give you money for your church program? Well, the way you do that is to use the words without the biblical meaning. So they'll yak yak endlessly. The next few weeks you hear all these sermons about the resurrection, the idea of the resurrection. Oh, what a wonderful thing that is. And yak, 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 yak. And everybody, oh, gee, yeah, pretty good. And, but, but they're not talking about the physical resurrection of Jesus. They're talking about the idea of the resurrection. Not that it happened. Just the idea gives you a thrill. I mean, I could think of the force in Empire Strikes Back and it gives me a thrill. So it doesn't, whatever idea gives you a thrill, whatever turns you on, the resurrection turns me on. Whether it happened or not, I don't care. But see, that's not biblical faith. Because what if we stressed in every one of these events that if these things never happened, we have no faith. 
Because what are these things? These things are acts of God that He promised by words to carry out. Well, if they didn't happen, then God didn't carry them out. And then His promises are wrong and His character is slandered. So, we are locked in, as Bible-believing Christians, to the historicity of these events. We're not just talking about the idea of the resurrection, we're talking about the act of the resurrection. So, at this point, what is it that... I mean, these guys aren't stupid, and many of them are sincere people. They want to do good. Where have they gotten off in their thinking? Right here. They have bought into a pagan view of language. Remember we stressed this back? When Adam walked in the garden, he had a language, God had a language. Whose language took precedent? God's did. Whose language preceded all human language? God's language. And what did God's language do? If you, so to speak, if you could have had a tape recorder on the third day before man was created, you would have heard God speak and boom, things would have appeared. God spoke and it was done, Psalm 33 says. So his language, unlike our language, causes things to happen. Jesus cursed the fig tree. Remember the scene in the Gospels? He passed by and he cursed it. The tree went down. His language has power, just the language. He didn't reach out and touch it. God didn't have to do that. He just does it with his language. Now, the implications of that are fantastic. What that means is that every time you study anything, you might be studying plants, maybe studying animals, maybe studying machinery, whatever it is, you're studying something that has structure to it. Do you realize that the structure that you're studying, whether it's electricity, whether it's some area of physics, whether it's biology, whatever the structure is, that you're looking at something that rides on top of God's Word. It is God's Word that brought that structure into existence. God first had the thought in His mind, then He built the structure. The structure comes out of His Word. That's why in Colossians there's that mysterious, funny verse that says, by the, by the Word of Christ, all things subsist. Meaning that the universe is held together by the Word of God. Because the universe is God's plan. It's His drama. It's His script. And so, the script holds the whole play together. And that means it holds all the structures together. So we have an extremely high view of language. Well, we come into the 20th century and everything, language falls apart. Everybody says poetry and feelings replace it because this thought over here on this side of the barrier is limited because it's limited it can never give true answers and so in the liberal arts area the idea of thoughtful language kind of drops away in a, in a serious sense now we have some characteristics of revelation that I spelled out beginning on page 69 70 and 71 and we'll probably get over try to get over to there tonight I want to look at these char- I've isolated five characteristics. Could I slate more? Could I slate less? I've just picked these five, hoping that as we go through them tonight, and as you keep these in your notes, someday you'll get wrapped around the axle with this stuff, I guarantee it. If you do any kind of witnessing 
uh, evangelism. It doesn't mean you have to talk about these things to people. It just means you have to be alert to the agendas that are going on. Because the agendas are going on. They're going around all around us. First characteristic of Revelation is that it is verbal. It's not just a feeling. It is verbal. Now, New Age, Oriental religion, and all those stress what? Sit down in the lotus position and contemplate your navel. Why? There's nothing else to contemplate. And so it's all this self-contemplation stuff. There's never a spoken word, nothing even put in an English sentence. I want to show you in uh, Acts 26, verse 14. A verse that maybe you've read before as you read through the book of Acts and maybe never noticed. It's It's a word about language and how God speaks in it. Acts 26, 14. We could go to Mount Sinai, but we've been there before on these Thursday nights, so I hope you're convinced that the Bible's reporting the fact that God spoke in Hebrew, that if you had a tape recording, you could have taped it as you sat in that valley that we saw in the, in the slides when He spoke. But in Acts 26.14, Paul is reporting before court trial court hearing or investigation about his role. Uh, We won't get into that. But in verse 14, look how he describes his encounter with Jesus Christ. Keep in mind, Paul may have never met Jesus personally. That's the first time he's met Jesus. It's on the Damascus Road at that famous passage where he was converted. Now, what do you notice peculiar in verse 14? Just from what I said, what is it about that verse that could not be accepted by a modern theologian? How would a modern theologian with a paganized view of language interpret verse 14, do you think? Reverend liberal, how would he handle that? Exactly. What Paul really did is he had, must have had a sunstroke out in the hot, it was a hot road that day. He probably had a sunstroke. And he had the impression that he heard this happening. You see the difference? You see the difference between what they're saying and what we're saying. What verse 14 is saying is, if you don't psychologize it and screw it up, just look at the text. When we had all fallen to the ground, I heard. It doesn't say, I thought I heard. He's reporting, I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic or the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And we all know that that verse. But what I want to point to tonight is that little phrase, he spoke to me in Aramaic or in the Hebrew dialect. He's identifying what language it was God spoke in. See? That's powerful. Because it means that when when the Lord Jesus on that road spoke to Paul, He spoke with an accent. He spoke with a grammar. He spoke with syntax. He spoke with meaning. He spoke with a vocabulary. He spoke just like we speak. And that means his thought can go from his omniscient mind to my feeble, finite mind. There can be transfer between God and me. 
That's me. Because now I can know the heart of my God. I don't have to dream it. I don't have to feel it. I can know it because he speaks. Okay? So that's the first thing we want to grab about Revelation. It's not what somebody thought they heard. It's not an impression. It is a public, verbal message. That's why you want to be careful. We have a sloppy habit in our evangelical circles about saying, the Lord spoke to me. Da, 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 da. Now, we all kind of know what we're talking about. What we mean is, and the Holy Spirit can prompt us today. And He can prompt us through our conscience, through the Word of God that we've known, we've prayed about it, and we get leadings of the Lord. That's, that's fine. That's legitimate. But the danger is, when we say, the Lord spoke to me, is that we identified that with what happened on the Damascus Road, and that's wrong. What happened on Damascus Road isn't that the Lord spoke to me. It's the Lord spoke to me out loud. That's the difference. So, be careful. Just be careful of that terminology. Okay, at least you can use it, but just be careful in your own head that you're not um, mixed up on it. Okay, on page 70, the second thing that quickly follows... And I want you to turn to John 14, verse 21. Because what I'm trying to show you here is that these truths we're learning apply to both Old and New Testament. In fact, like I said before, the more you know of the Old Testament, something will happen to you as you read your New Testament. What I've found over the years is, as I've studied the Old Testament more and more, got more acquainted with it, you know what has happened? When I look at the New Testament... I see less new in it. There's very little new in the New Testament. Most of it is just a repeat of the Old Testament. It just seems to be new because we don't know the Old Testament. That's the problem. It's new to us, but it's actually not new in the history of Revelation. The second characteristic is that Revelation is personal. So we've, we've gotten the first one, it's verbal. Now it's personal, obviously related. And when we talk about revelation as personal, here's why, what I'm trying to get at. Because it is a message from a personal God to us, we can't be neutral to it. If somebody comes up and speaks to you, you either don't speak, you reject them, or you listen to them. But you can't kind of be indifferent because you know how that feeling is. When you talk to somebody and you don't get a reaction, you know, what, it's one of those things we always say that the, the lights are on, but no one's at home. I mean, what's the problem here? So, the idea at, in Revelation is that it doesn't leave us any neutral zone. Usual everyday street meaning to the word love. What is it that seems missing? from this view of love that we normally think more about when we use the word love. Do you sense there's kind of like a missing thing here? It's kind of bland. It's emotionally bland, isn't it? What do you suppose... Why do you suppose that's that way? Why does it strike you, this meaning of the word love, love, you keep my commandments, you love Pharaoh, love the Lord with all your heart. Why does that strike us as bland? Why do you suppose it strikes us as bland? We observe that. Why do you think God uses the word that way? 
what do you think he's after by making it sound so bland? What's the danger of getting an emotional content in here and focusing on it? That's going to change from day to day, right? Up one day, down the next. Roller coaster. Because what we've done is not wrong to have emotion. Obviously, have emotion. But the problem is that if you define it strictly in emotional terms, you set yourself up for an unstable relationship. This relationship is more stable because it's not grounded on an emotional meaning to the word love. It's just a very cold, objective, and almost bland use of the word here. You got the treaty? Stick with it, buddy. Now, let me add, hasten to add here, there is an emotional kick in here that you don't get by reading that rib addu says to Pharaoh to love Pharaoh as a servant to remain faithful to the status of vassal. That's very cold and bland. But in the Bible, what did we just get through saying as we started tonight? The difference between men's treaties and God's treaties. God addresses what that the men's treaties don't address. Addresses the heart. So when God uses thou shalt love me with all your heart, with all your mind, it's a far deeper thing than rib addu and Pharaoh. So now we're back, now we, we pick up the emotion content. But now the emotion content is deeply rooted down here at the conscience level. That's where it's rooted. It's not rooted in a social thing that's just going out like this. Because you can't, you can't sustain that kind of thing. You wear yourself out after a while. Because you can't have emotions running at 95 to 100% level all the time and not finally crash. You've got to have something that sustains you day after day after day after day, and that's what the Bible stresses. That's why this is the word in here. Okay, it's personal and therefore not neutral. It means it draws me into a relationship with God or it repels me. The word of God attracts or repels. All right, the third characteristic, and that is, if you turn to Exodus 12 for a moment, we'll look at that characteristic. Revelation doesn't happen all the time. If you took a a, a bar chart and plotted the frequency of major revelations in history, here's what it would look like. Here's the cross of Christ. Here's David, 1000 B.C. Here's Abraham, 2000 B.C. Here's the Exodus over here, uh, the uh, fall of the kingdom, say 586 here. You would see that there'll be a, there's some revelation going on in Abraham's day. And remember, what do we observe about Genesis? What happened to the Theophanies? As you go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph, what happened? Remember that trend, wasn't there? You have a lot of Theophanies with Abraham, less with Isaac, until you get down to Joseph, and there's no Theophanies. It's just dreams. So the spectacular nature of revelation declines. And then it picks up again at the Exodus. And then it declines. Then it picks up again in the times of the prophets. And then it declines. And goes into almost a total silence for 400 years. Then it picks up again in the days of Jesus and the apostles. And then it declines. People always want to say, Oh, I, I believe that God ought to reveal himself all in every generation. That's not the biblical precedent. God doesn't do that. And in Exodus chapter 12, verse 14... Here's a after effect of that. There's, a, there's a, something that follows from the non-constant nature of Revelation. Verse 14, Now this day shall be a memorial to you 
and you shall celebrate it. What is this, what is this day talking about, by the way? Exodus and Passover. Okay? This day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. And you shall have an assembly and so forth, and it, it describes what shall happen. And um, it will come to pass, verse 26, it will come about when your children will say to you, what does this right mean to you? You will say, dot, 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 dot. Now, what's verse 26 and 27 talking about? Where is Passover celebrated today in Jewish home? In the home or the synagogue? Anybody know? The home. It's always done in the home. Maybe might have some of it in the synagogue, but basically it's an ordinance of the family. And this is a family gathering. And what do you get from verse 26? That the dad and mom are setting this up, and the kid's curious. Hey, what, what's all this about? And it's an occasion of home teaching. It's homeschooling, right associated with the Passover. And why was it necessary, do you suppose? Why is it necessary to set up a monument to Revelation? For a memory. Why do you have to remember? Because it doesn't happen in every generation. Revelation happens and then it's remembered. It happens and then it's remembered. It happens and then it's remembered. It happens and then it's remembered. What is the service we have in church? Communion. And what is the words that we read every time we have communion? This is a memorial. Do this in remembrance of me. Why do we do that? Because it doesn't, Revelation isn't hot in every generation. It doesn't mean God doesn't have a relationship with people. It doesn't mean he doesn't give you personal assurance. It doesn't mean that people aren't one to the Lord. We're not talking about that. See, there's a difference between this overt, public, miraculous type revelation and the personal thing that's constant with time with people growing and having relationships with the Lord. What we're trying to do is point to the fact that throughout the Bible you have this again and again. And in the future, you're going to have the second advent of Christ. And I imagine during the Millennial Kingdom it'll decline until the end of the Millennial Kingdom and then you'll have another big gob of revelation. So it goes on and on and on like this. So the Bible, as the written document, is the memorial and the record. That's why this book is so important. Okay, next, after the historicity of Revelation... Oh, and by the way, one little comment about why do you suppose Revelation is not constant? Um, why do you suppose that God, for example, we studied two so far, this one and this one, why do you suppose He waited to reveal what He did in the Exodus and didn't show it to Abraham? What did He show in the Exodus that couldn't have been done in Abraham's day. Salvation of a what was saved? A nation. Didn't have a nation to save. So history has a plan to it. This is the exciting thing about history. I would learn to hate history in, in school. I was a non-Christian. Nobody ever pointed out to me, uh, other than learning to me, the uh, history was just memorizing on Friday and Saturday, all the dates, so you could pass a test on Monday and then forget them till the next test. And it was, it was reason because I was taught wrong. The methodology of me learning history, as I remember, was just a set of dates. This happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and blah, 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 blah. Well, it was like I had a, a bunch of beads and no necklace to make with them. 
There was no pattern to it. It was just marbles rolling all over the place. I have to have a pattern to my thing, or I'm not interested in it. That's why I always went to math and physics. At least I had a pattern. Never could. I was very impatient with liberal arts because at the time I didn't understand it because I didn't have any Christian background. Well, the Bible gives us the fact that God reveals when history is ready. Remember in Galatians, what does it say? Jesus was revealed in the what of time? In the fullness of time. So there are moments in history that have to come before God's going to show himself. Now here's, here's just a thought of mine, just to stimulate a reason to follow this process up. Do you suppose that Jesus' name as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, as a world ruler to whom all the nations bow, could not have been revealed in Jesus' day, but has to wait until a future historic moment when what has been prepared? I believe that Christ's second advent can't come until God in His sovereignty works a global understanding. We're getting there very rapidly now where we, we think globally. Now the nations are talking to one another. We have a global consciousness. I mean, the consciousness of the world in, in Jesus and Paul's day is very small. But we are getting a global consciousness. We're seeing the need for a global world government. We're seeing, otherwise, we don't have peace. We're seeing a need. And so it's like God is slowly grooming the human race. And when the right moment comes, He will reveal some more. But He's not going to reveal it because it wouldn't be fully meaningful to reveal it until that future time. Now, the application for each one of us in our lives is if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that He has done things this year in your life that he are new to you. You've seen things happen in your life this year that are different and new than you ever had before in your life. Now think about, take a, a one or two of those things in your own mind's eye and ask yourself, could he have meaningfully revealed those this year, that he did this year five years ago to you? Would you have, on the basis of your experience five years ago, have appreciated it like you do now? And similarly, many of the things that he's revealing now, we kind of half appreciate until we get further away. So, oh yeah, that's what he was doing. So, that happens privately, but I believe it happens corporately to the human race. And that's why this bar graph is the way it is. God shoots his revelation into history. He sort of speaks to that historic moment. And then he quietly, he, sets an, he, t- he walks off stage, and somehow, in his miraculous, sovereign way, he, he works history around. Works history around. And then, when the right moment comes, he gets on stage and he makes another public revelation. Then he walks off stage and he does this game, as it were, until the final time comes when he is fully revealed in history. Okay. Um, if next time you would look at the verses, particularly the paragraph on page 71, I want you to get a good dose in both those paragraphs, of how comprehensive God's revelation is. That he spoke to... I want you to satisfy yourself that the law, the Mosaic law, spoke to every sphere of human life. I want you to convince yourself that that was true. That it's not just speaking of what we call the religious area. 
I want you to convince yourself from reading the law that he spoke to economics, he spoke to politics, he spoke to courts, he spoke to law, he spoke to animals. And you'll see a little quote in there. God basically had the first laws of humane treatment of animals. And all of us know one of the Ten Commandments. Which one is it? It was addressed to animals as well as men. The Sabbath commandment. Not only shall man rest, but his animals should rest. They are drawn into the same order because God is creator of man. He's creator of the animals. And so animals are treated humanely. Amazing. When they were treated quite cruelly out in the pagan era. The only reason the pagans took care of animals is because they didn't want to pay for a new one. But in the Bible, there's that passage on how... Do you remember when the, the cattle would be... The oxen would be uh, strapped to this um, millstone, turning the millstone. And what they would do to be humane to that oxen is they would unmuzzle it. So as he walked around, he could snack. And Paul picks that up and he uses it in the New Testament for the humane treatment of pastors. <laughs> um, so, it's interesting. The, the laws of the animals uh, show you God's heart. God cares for them. Father, we thank you that you are a caring God and we thank you that you have left ample evidence for each one of us. We ask now that you would speak to our hearts and that we would have the patience to listen and be quiet and take our position underneath your authority. We ask this in the name of our Savior. Amen. And it's not next week, it's two weeks. Next week we don't have class. Oh, I'm, it's dispensational. I just haven't got to the, using the word yet. Yeah. And the reason I haven't used the word is because we really don't get into the rationale behind the dispensational view of theology until we get into the church age and we deal with that difference. And that's when I want to introduce it. If I don't, uh, too many people start vibrating early on and don't listen to everything else. So I, I don't want to do that. But yes, it's, it's, very, it's obvious that God works differently in different ages. There's no question about it. And the attempts by covenant people to make it just like the Old and the New Testament just sort of run together. It's really not doing justice to the differences. Anything else? Any other questions? Oops. Um, if you don't have, have never seen this, uh, I don't even know whether it's still in print, but here's another example of um, the comprehensiveness of the Old Testament law code. Uh, it was written by, I believe, a Seventh-day Adventist, S.I. McMillan. He was a doctor, M.D., and he wrote none of these diseases. Now, it's interesting. Remember back when we were going through Genesis, I said the Seventh-day Adventists actually were the only people who consistently held a literal view of Genesis over the years. In fact, they were the ones that kept the <laughs> creationism alive. Um, and uh, Seventh-day Adventists is a, it's not quite a cult. It's, it's pretty orthodox. I mean, we would differ with some crucial areas, but they came out of the uh, Adventist revivals of the late 19th century. Um, and we call them the Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, but 
they preserved within their churches a very literalness. And in particular, the Seventh-day Adventists, I have a Jewish friend of mine who's a Christian who says they're Gentiles trying very, different, very hard to be Jews. But they have a deep respect for the Old Testament. In particular, the Seventh-day Adventists in our country have reflected by the dry cereals that we eat, Post and Kellogg were both Seventh-day Adventist businessmen. And they both created the cereals we eat, cornflakes being one of them, uh, as a health food. They were, in the, before they put sugar and everything else on them, those cereals were created by Seventh-day Adventists to improve the diet of America. Uh, just an interesting thing. And it came out of their uh, passion to observe Old Testament law. And uh, another feature to that particular group of people is that they have pushed medical research. Loma Linda is a well-known medical center in California that's started by the Seventh-day Adventists. And they have done a lot of work uh, in medicine and medical missionary work. Well, S.I. McMillan, uh, now dead, now deceased, wrote many years ago this book, None of These Diseases. And I think his son re edited this thing and reprint. Somebody told me in the last five years or so they saw it out. It's a book that would be fascinating reading because what he does in this book, he goes through 26 chapters and shows the medical implications of following the Mosaic Law Code. He, um, he uh, for example, the first one, uh, he's talking about quarantine, the rules of quarantine, Leviticus 13. Um, in 2, he's talking about pride and prejudice versus proof and the issue of sanitation in Numbers 19. Uh, he has one of the most eloquent uh, and sad stories in here about the, um, I guess, everybody um, who's trained in medicine or nursing has had the story of Dr. Samuelweis. And Dr. Samuelweis was an Austrian physician in Vienna who studied the wards where women were dying. And women would come in healthy and die in the hospital ward. And what Samuel Weiss noticed, and he didn't have any... Keep in mind, this is before germ theories now, okay? All Samuel Weiss observed was that the medical students would be going, examining one woman from another woman from another woman without washing their hands or anything else. And they'd examine a dead woman and go to a live woman and so on. Well, you can imagine what was being happening, transport of diseases. So Samuel Weiss got the idea... Let's try washing hands. So he made a very, it appeared to be, a stupid rule in this Vienna hospital that you shall not move from one woman to the next without washing your hands in running water. And the medical students rebelled against such a stupid thing. And they fought Samuel Weiss, howled tooth and tongue. He had a ward where he did the experiment and proved the women lived. No, gee, wonder. They lived on his ward. And in spite of the evidence, they kicked him out, said he was adding to the bureaucratic rules of the hospital, this is foolish practice, blah, 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 blah. And Semmelweis sadly wound up as a psychiatric case because he got so depressed over not being able to get people to wash their hands in simple sanitary medical procedures. But what Macmillan points out is that you find the washing of the hands prescribed in the Mosaic Law Code. And he says how sad that the whole Middle Ages transpired and thousands of people died in all of Europe in these black plagues and everything else from simple filth, public filth. And had they read 
some of the passages where it says, for example, never forget this, I was teaching the book of Deuteronomy and for Christmas I wound up in the passage on latrines. And I don't know how I did that, but um, I always trusted that the Holy Spirit would superintend you know, what passage I spoke, so I just went ahead and talked about latrines and Christmas. Uh, but the, the latrines were kept outside the camp because God said, I, want, I don't want filth in my camp. Now, keep in mind, for us that's obvious. But for those people it wasn't obvious because they didn't have a rationale for why that was, made sense. They didn't know about germs. So that was the startling thing about these, the health provisions in the Mosaic Law Code are built and administered to people who had no knowledge whatsoever. Another thing that they have in the Mosaic Law Code, so ultraviolet sterilization. When people had wounds, bleeding, pussy, infected wounds, and leprosy, they would take the garments and they lay them out in the sun. Now, Moses could have argued, oh, well, that's stupid, because he didn't realize uh, medically that what ultraviolet sterilization was happening. So, to me, those are exciting little details about the Bible because, I mean, come on. If the Bible were written by men, men would, don't just think those things up. That, that, those little, little details of the Mosaic Law are fingerprints of our God. It tells you who was really behind that law. Who would have thought about the health of his people? Put your latrines outside the camp, use ultraviolet sterilization, and wash your hands. Basic public health moves. Well, uh, the other one that I was going to, I was going to show in here, he, he goes through the mental, the, psychi- the psychological, um, but he has one interesting case in here where he's talking about the practice of circumcision and the day in which it is done. And uh, I can't find the passage here, but... Okay, 19. Um, his chapter is entitled, Science Arrives 4,000 Years Late. And he, he, he points out that in the Jewish Bible, in the, in the Old Testament, the baby was to be circumcised on a certain day. And it was to be six or seven days after birth. A week, I guess it was. After birth. And today, of course, we circumcise the first or second day. Well, in here he points out the prothrombin, which is useful for clotting. There's a graph in here. And it peaks in the baby's body on the seventh day after birth. Now, I mean, would Moses do blood testing and worked out that particular provision? No. It's the fact that the creator who made our bodies told us, do it on the sixth or seventh day. Because I built the blood and I know all about the clotting system. And I tell you, that's the day I want you to do it. So, this little book has lots of, of the, it's just filled with them, of case after case after case of medical. Here's a doctor looking at the Mosaic Law Code from the standpoint of public health. And it's, I always collect these things because those are little quickies that kind of just point um, in little minuscule portions of the Word of God to its genuineness and to the, to the one who wrote it. Any other questions? Discussion? Okay.